Anybody know who this is? Remember your science? Isaac Newton, I hear that being stirred around. Isaac Newton, sitting under the tree, apple falls on him, and he starts thinking, why did it fall down? And he starts studying that, figuring that out, and he says, it's the same reason the moon orbits the earth. Gravity, epiphany, a great thing that changed his life and changed science, epiphany. Anybody know who this is? Ooh, I heard somebody say it. Who said it? Uh, Randy, of course. Our, our resident brilliant man. Archimedes, right? This is a guy who gets in the bathtub and suddenly realizes the water level rose. Isn't that brilliant? He, he, he decided, the water went up when I got in the water, and he discovered, he started thinking about that deeply. That's just... Uh, I, I never think that deeply, right? But he thought about that deeply and realizes the volume of the water goes up as the volume of the thing that goes into the water, right? The person goes into the water. And he's so excited, he goes, Eureka! And he runs naked through the city streets of Syracuse. Wow! That's called epiphany. Something that changes his outlook on life. We should be able to relate to this. Not running through town naked, but discovering a truth that so blows our minds and so revolutionizes our lives that everything is different after these truths. Epiphany. That's what an epiphany is. In ancient times, they thought of it as a visitation from the gods. So Paul is writing this to the people of Crete, or Titus in Crete. And the people of Crete, that's the home country of Zeus. And I'm sure they were used to wanting and maybe even receiving some appearances of Zeus. That's called an epiphany. Today it's not a visitation of a god. Today it's that you suddenly learn something revolutionary. And you think this is kind of like, this is a supernatural revelation that changes my entire outlook on life. Epiphany. Paul uses this word twice in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Two epiphanies that every Christian must experience. It's essential that you have these. Not just that you have them, but they empower a complete change and reordering of your life. Epiphanies, aha moments, eureka moments. The first one, the words in red or the word epiphany in the Greek, for the grace of God has appeared. God's grace is an epiphany. It's something that becomes manifest, right? It comes into history. It becomes visible for all to see. Grace is this wonderful, we know it as amazing grace. Grace is this one little word, five letters, that encapsulates the incredible love and devotion and commitment of God to take care of us and to save us. It's called grace. And every time you say that one word, it just should bring a smile to your face. Grace, God's commitment to absolutely love me. It's an attribute of God, like kindness or compassion. But in this case, it's an attribute of God that materialized in the flesh. It became visible, tangible. Paul doesn't say where the red is. He doesn't say how it appeared. He goes on to talk about what it did, but later on in this verse 14, he talks about when this appearance came. When did God's grace 
become concrete and visible. It's when our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. God appeared. Jesus appeared. Jesus gave himself, didn't send an envoy, didn't send an ambassador. He came himself. After all, if you're going to do it right, you better do it yourself. And God did that. He came on the scene of history. The appearance of a God, literally. Not like these weird things from, oh, Zeus, that might be Zeus, or that might be a demigod. No, no. Our God did appear. He did appear, and it became God's grace. Epiphany indeed. Personally showed up. Not only did he come, not only did he give himself, but he gave himself for us. We were the ones in trouble. We the ones being held ransom for our sin. We were the ones that had a debt that we could not pay. And so God chose to come himself and pay that debt off in person for us. Have you seen it? This event you see on the screen now actually happened in history. On a day. In history, on earth, outside Jerusalem, this took place wasn't all that revolutionary, y'all. This happened a lot. This kind of thing happened a lot in Rome. It was a way for them to, to cause people to think about what they do because this is capital punishment. So this would happen in Rome quite a bit. Nothing revolutionary about this. This happened in history. This is a historical moment. And we could point back to it and everybody will say, okay, that happened. But there's something different. It becomes not just a gross scene of history. It becomes a major expression of God's grace when you know who that is. That's not some common criminal, not the one in the middle. Look at the one, I'm not talking about the side, I'm looking at the one, you know who that is? Y'all know who that is. There's some things, it it, it happened, it's history, everybody will say it, you can look at the history books, that happened under a certain, right, Uh, under a certain emperor, all that stuff, that happened, we know it, But, but here's the thing, it changes, it changes from just an event to an epiphany when you realize who that is. That's God. But it's not just who that is. It's also who should be there. Who should be there? Come on, church. Who should be there? Me. Don't say us. Me. I should be there. So now you know who it is, you know who it should be, and you know why he's there. He's taking your place, paying off that ransom that you, that you earn by your lawlessness. And when suddenly that becomes not just history, not just an episode, but an epiphany, everything changes. Everything changes. It's not just history. We're not gathering around just to observe a historical moment. We're, we're gathering around as an epiphany, something that changed our life. Everything before is different. Everything after is different because of what we know about this. It's our aha moment. And nothing is ever the same again. And that is why earlier in this passage when he says, the grace of God appeared, he says, bringing salvation. He brought salvation. Grace appeared. 
But it wasn't just bringing salvation. Notice the second part of verse 14. He also came to purify for himself a people who are his own possession, zealous for good works. He didn't just save you. He created you into something that you weren't before. Now you're not a citizen of the earth. You are now a child of God. You are his chosen person. He's changed your complete identity. Guys, when you figure out the epiphany of the cross, the grace that appeared there, it doesn't just save you, it changes you. It makes you into somebody totally different. That's what epiphany does. Anything less than that is not an epiphany. Anything less than that is not the saving grace of Jesus. He, He changed us into a completely different people, and we are zealous to do good works. Not because we're taught you do good works, It's because of what experience happened at the epiphany. It gave us a power to do something different. And he he describes what that looks like. Go back up. He says, bringing salvation, which is the first part of verse 14. And then verse 13, training us. That's the second part. Training us. Purifying from... And what is that training involved? It involves two things. You renounce ungodliness. You don't just acknowledge, yeah, that's ungodly. You find it repulsive. You get as far away from it as you can. I've just experienced the grace of God uh, and, and God coming in the flesh on the cross, and I can't stand anything that would take me further away from God. Anything I do that actually makes God become far from it, I can't stand it. I renounce it. It's just undoable. And mostly what that describes is worldly passions, right? I renounce ungodliness, which is the passions of the world. The world is this supermarket, a capitalistic supermarket of all kinds of ways to meet the desires of the flesh, and you just go out there and it's a buffet of choices, and the world says, just eat away, just do whatever you want, whatever, but no, 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 see, because you're no longer in that age. You're no longer that identity. Grace changed you, and now you find yourself repulsed by so many of those options. Because it would hurt the God who saved you. And you say, no, I can't do that. And so you renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And he says, and what else do you do? You replace it with something. You you replace it with self-control, upright, and godly lives. In regard to yourself, you now have self-control. My relationship with God is such that now, because I've experienced the grace of God, this appearance, this epiphany, now I want to control myself. I don't want to let myself do things that would be further from God, and so I control myself. But there's another part of this. I want to do right by you. I want to be upright in my relationship with everybody in the world. I I, I care about the impact I have on you. And there'll be some Christians come, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yes, you do. If you've had an epiphany, you do. If you know the grace of God, you do. You want to be upright. I want to make sure I do the rightest thing in regard to everybody. The epiphany makes you that way. And then finally, in regard to God, I want to be just like him. You know why we worship God? Because he's like everything we'd want to be. And there's nothing in this world Nothing in this world that's as great as the God we worship. And I want to get as close to him, and I want to get close enough that I become like him, and I become godly. That's what the epiphany does. That's the epiphany of God's grace. You look at that guy on the cross, and you realize who it was, and who it should have been, and why he's there, and it changes everything. It's epiphany. And it also 
This is why you make different decisions than you used to. This is why you talk different than you used to. This is why worship is so very boring to some and something some would not miss for anything. What's the difference? The epiphany of God's grace. That's why it began, this whole paragraph begins with the word for. You notice that in verse 11? He's just spent 10 verses doing what we did last week, making people stand and say, you older people, you be self-controlled and you have a sound and faith and love and, and endurance. I want, I want you to be this way. And you older ladies, you be this way. And you younger ladies, you be this way. You know why? Because we've had an epiphany. Grace changes you. I don't have to argue all the time. Don't sleep around and don't use that language. You know, when you've had an epiphany, it's from within that you decide those things. It's like, I can't do that, not with a God and what he's done with me. It's the epiphany. It's more than just baptism. It's an epiphany. It's a change, and everything after this is different. And, and it means that now we're waiting for something. You know, we rejoice because we've been redeemed. We live differently. And we're waiting for something. I want you to think about the difference between a Christian and non-Christian. Non-Christians live each day just, what are they living for? What do they know is ahead? Nothing. You just live this life and do the best you can with this life and gather as much toys as you can and live with as much gusto and have as much fun because they aren't waiting for anything. Not so with Christians. We're waiting for something. When you're waiting for something, you know something's coming. You're just waiting for it. And we're not waiting like idle time, like we're sitting here, sitting on our hands or biting our nails or just kind of, oh, man, why'd you hurry? And being impatient for it. No, 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 no. Waiting, waiting is the posture of every age of Christians. You look at the scriptures and it's full of wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Something's coming. He's got another thing for you. And because we've experienced the grace of God, we know that there's something up ahead of us, right? And so we're waiting. And so there are many of us have to wait. There are some of you looking for a spouse for your life. You really long to have a spouse, someone that's special you share life with, but that it's not coming, and so you just have to wait. You just have to wait for it. And then some of you have, have, have found that person, but you can't seem to have children, and so you're, you're waiting for God to bless you with children. And then some of you are like, I don't know what the next chapter of my life is. Where should I be next? What should I be looking forward to? I don't know, I'm just waiting, and, and, and it feels angsty, right? But here's the thing, the word waiting that begins verse 13 is just the same thing he described in verse 12. You know what you're supposed to be doing as you wait? Being holy. You're, you're, you're supposed to Turn away from godly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's called waiting. The way, you know what you should do if you're a single person waiting for that extra person, to, that, that special person? Make yourself holy. 
Make yourself live like verse 12 so that when that person comes along, you are who you need to be to be the person they need in life. You're not just idly waiting. You're producing something in yourself. Those of you waiting to have kids, listen, here's the best thing you can do. Be living your holy life so that when your kids come, your holiness is even stronger than it was before. And if you're waiting for that next chapter to start in your life, what should you be doing right now? Being holy. That's waiting. But we're waiting for something. We're waiting for another epiphany. Now, the weird thing about epiphanies is they're supposed to be spontaneous, unexpected, serendipitous, if that's a word. They're supposed to be like come out of nowhere. But for the Christian, the second epiphany doesn't come out of nowhere. We know it's coming, and so we, we look at the second one. Look at the second appearing. Here's Epiphany again. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. No law, it's not grace next time. There's not grace next time. There's just glory next time. The, the grace has already appeared, and it, it takes care of saving us for that day and keeping us saved and ready for that day, but that's not what's happening next time. Next time when he comes, it's all glory. It's all glory. It's where we're wanting to be. The same one who showed his grace is going to show that glory, and you don't want to miss it, church. We don't want to miss it. Do you still believe it's coming, church? Do you still believe it's coming? You still waiting for it? Have we, have we, have we gotten so busy that we've forgotten and we just kind of put it in the back and don't think it's going to happen? Bring on that epiphany, church. Let's bring it on. That's what we want to happen. That's what he's saying, hasten that day. Glory is when God shows up and he's clearly seen by everybody. We finally get to see our Lord, but so does the unbelieving world. God shows up. He's totally visible. Faith now becomes sight. We're living for this. We're waiting for this, and we know it's coming. All the time that we've lived different, all the time that we've denied ourselves, all the time that we've taken the persecution, all the time that you've taken the torment and the taunt of temptation in our lives, and we've said no, and we've resisted, we will that day say it was worth it. We will see it in all its glory. And just like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, all our frustrations, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worth comparing to the glory we will see that day. Frustrations and persecutions will melt away into something that takes its place as rejoicing. We've preached this truth. We've been mocked by the world. Other people look at us and laugh and scoff, as he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that we think Jesus is going to return. They think we're nuts. We live a different way. They think we're old-fashioned and we're prudish, and there's no reason why. There's no benefit to living that way. Oh, yes, there is, and you will see it. You will see it. On that day, we will make the good confession, but we'll make it again because we've already made it. And we make it daily, but we'll say it again in his presence. You are Lord, and we'll sing Jesus is Lord in the most rapturous way we've ever sung it in our lives. And then the rest of the world, they'll say it too. But it will be a terrifying admission of what they missed. We sing this song sometimes. No, a lot of times, because since Mitchell likes it, we sing it all the time. Not there's a stirring. No, no, this one, this one makes a stirring be stilled. 
Here's the third verse. It's a weird third verse. I've just thought it weird all my life, and you just have to think about it. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. You know what that day is? That's the appearing, the epiphany of God's glory. All right. And the singer, if you're singing that third verse, you're saying, hurry up, Lord. Can you say, hurry up, Lord? Is there anybody in here that says, don't say that? Because I got this I'm looking forward to, and this I'm looking forward to, and this I'm looking forward to. I don't want to do this. No, no. Can, is there anybody here that says, oh, okay, listen. How many think prayer, God listens to us, and he might actually answer us? Raise your hand. Let's pray right now, but be careful whether you can pray this or not. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for the truth you've given us. We're thankful for the grace you have shown us, not just told us, but you've shown us the epiphany of your grace that changes our lives, reorders our lives. And Father, we look forward to your glory. And Father, if, if our prayer means anything this morning, if this has any power and impact on you, would you please come this morning in the next five minutes? Take us home, let us see your glory. We'll just go from here on top of this hill. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many hope that that happens? Really? Because actually you sing that every time you sing this song. Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sighed. But now listen to the rest of it. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. Is that going to happen? That's what the scripture says, okay? The trump shall resound. That's true enough. And the Lord shall descend. Even so. Why would you say even so? It is well with my soul. Well, well, despite that, it's still good with my soul. What do you mean despite that? What is the even so? Two things, I think. One is, you know what the word awesome means? It doesn't mean that's a great pizza. I know people use it for that all the time. Awesome doesn't mean, that is so cool. Awesome means, that is terrifying. That makes me shudder. Now, it doesn't mean you're not prepared for it, but y'all, when Jesus comes... You, you're ready for it. I hope to goodness you are. I hope that the grace that he's already shown you, the epiphany of grace, has prepared you for the epiphany of glory. That's the whole point of this passage. I hope that, and if that's the case, you know he's coming and you're ready and you say, but even when you're ready, when that day comes, it's awesome. It is gonna totally rock your body. It is gonna shake you up. You're ready for it, but y'all, no one can be ready for the appearing of the glory of God like that. So even so, I'm going to feel small. I'm going to feel crushed. But it's well with my soul. Now the other reason I think is this. We know it's coming and we're waiting. There's a lot of people we love who don't know and aren't ready and that breaks our hearts 
doesn't it? To think that it comes and it's not going to include them. But even so, even so, my soul is ready, right? That's, that's what this song is saying. We know it's coming, we're waiting for it, thanks to the epiphany of God's grace. His grace appeared in such splendor and power. It saved us and kept us prepared for the second epiphany, the glory that we're going to see. These are the two epiphanies, the two appearings, and we live between both of them. We've got to learn to see this one. You must experience the cross as an epiphany, the epiphany of God coming in the flesh saving you, and you must be prepared for the second one because it's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We don't know. But his grace is sufficient to prepare you for his glory, and that's what he's wanting us to learn. No reason for you not to be ready and not to be prepared and not to be waiting and not to be ready to hasten it if you've seen his grace. Is that man on the cross just a gross dying person or is it the grace of God? Is it a ransom for your sin? Is that an episode or an epiphany? If it's an epiphany, you'll never be the same and all you're waiting for now is the second one of his glory. But if today if today you finally see with your own eyes of your heart that that's not just a historical episode but that is an epiphany for your life you need to do what he said in Titus 3 to do be washed be filled and regenerated by the spirit and live that holy life of good works and join us in waiting for what's next Church, glory is coming. Okay, let me say it again. Glory is coming. It's coming, and all we need is what we know already. The grace that's already come has made you ready, unless you've not seen it. And this morning, if you've seen it, will you respond to it and join us in waiting for the epiphany of his glory? Please do. You don't want to miss it as we stand and as we sing together.